Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host and producer, Doug Storm. Today's show is Censorship and Sensibility. Our music today comes from Philip Glass's 1989 album Solo Piano, specifically the five variations of the composition Metamorphosis, all performed by Branka Parlik. The songs were inspired by the short story of the same name by Franz Kafka, published in 1915. One day, Gregor Samsa awoke to find himself a monstrous vermin, estranged from his family, his work, himself. This is Metamorphosis 1. Censorship and Sensibility features local author and film scholar Joan Hawkins in conversation with writer Laurie Stone. Stone was in town to read from her latest book as part of the Players Pub Spoken Word series, organized by Writers Guild at Bloomington. A longtime writer for The Village Voice, theater critic for The Nation, and critic at large on Fresh Air, Stone's new book of stories, My Life as an Animal, is composed from around the edges of multiple forms, memoir, fiction, journalism, essays, and criticism. At the center of each is a woman, figured to be similar to Stone, but with essential dissimilarities, writing from deep within the sexual politics born of 70s feminism, who feels and deploys the erotic pull of words as they both seduce and slice us open. In a review of My Life as an Animal, Joan Hawkins writes, quote, Stone's narrator is smart, funny, well-spoken, and complex, prickly, too. She finds her way in life and in these stories by challenging ideas and arguing with those close to her. If you're looking for a sweet, cozy of a tale about a 60-year-old woman falling in love and moving to Arizona, you need a different book. Animal is the perfect book for that corner cafe table that Patti Smith writes about in M-Train, where you read and reread books until you get the hang of their logic." Unquote. We begin with a controversy. Laurie Stone was set to read from her book on Studio A, a Sunday night talk show broadcast by WKCR, Columbia University's student-run radio station, until she got an email from the show's producer asking her not to read one of her stories. The producer wrote, quote, some particular lines in your selections do not reflect our station's values and, more importantly, our university's values, and would be an issue to air." Unquote. We should note that WFHB will bleep a certain word that is not allowed, I should say censored, by the FCC, but we will be hearing the lines that created the controversy. And now, Joan Hawkins and Laurie Stone, Censorship and Sensibility, on Interchange. Um, so you came because, in part, because you're promoting this uh, new book of stories, My Life as an Animal. Yes. And um, it was interesting because when you first described the book to me uh, as this series of linked essays, it seemed... Linked stories. or li Yeah, linked stories. And it seemed like the, um, the least likely of, of all your books to cause you any grief out in the world. And then... I know, and yeah. And then it did. <laughs> Um, a little. Yeah. A little, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I was hoping you would read from part of this story. It's called When People Fall, I Laugh. 
And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what happened when you tried to read it on the air once before. Yeah, well, I, I was invited to um, a radio program at WKCR, Columbia's uh, state. And I really didn't know. I, I, I was booked there. And there was a little bit of a weird thing that happened ahead of it. And I, it put me a little bit on guard, which was, well, they asked me to send the materials, what I would read. Oh. And no one had, I don't think in my entire life I've ever had that experience. And I didn't know why, but I thought it was probably because the host was a young woman. I knew that. I didn't know mm-hmm. that she was a Barnard, you know, like uh, eight or nine-year-old, but, um, but she was very young. And... Um, I thought, well, she just wants to get to know my work a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. she wants to familiarize herself, so she'll have some questions to ask. I honestly didn't think in in kind of like creeped out terms. But then, mm-hmm. of course, creepy things happen. Mm. So I'll read the thing. I'll read yeah. part of the thing that then caused her to get yeah. um, very upset and yeah. angry. Actually, before you start reading, I had a, an, an additional question to ask because – this is the one story in the book that you um, you have a kind of tagline for. So it's when people fall, I laugh, and it's after Edouard Levy. Yes. And so, could you say something about him? Like, oh why yeah, you. Well, um, I love his writing, and uh, I came upon an excerpt from Auto Portrait mm-hmm. in the Paris Review, and it was a line from. Auto Portrait was the title of the Paris Review excerpt, and it was called, When I Look at a Strawberry, I Think of a Tongue, or When I Think of a Tongue, I, you know, it was one, and it was Strawberries and Tongue. And so um, I read it, and I loved it, and uh, my partner, you know, my guy, and I have this writing practice where we will spend, you know, some time, when we're together in the same place at the same time, we try to write together to a prompt. And um, one of the things that's been really generative for the work that produced this entire book, meaning the um, the writing practice, is that they we decided when we started it that you could only write a kind of scene or a meditative essay. So you could not mm-hmm. – basically creating a writer's mm-hmm. notebook versus a diary or a journal or re- right. no rehashing your day. No, I felt, I felt, I felt, or it happened, I haven't, it happened. You know, so, yeah. so you know, the, the rights had to be somehow um, a, a, a kind of skeletal piece of writing that you were producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the time, we will just read somebody we like and try to imitate them. So oh, that's, that's how this happened. Okay. So we read LaVey, uh-huh. and we then have a practice of figuring out, well, what is he doing? You know, what is the writer doing? Right. And so we'll extract, you know, three or four craft and form elements, uh-huh. and then we'll, you know, write them out. Okay, he's doing lists. There's sort of the lists are somewhat organized around categories. You know, whatever you mm-hmm. can extract from figuring out what's he, you know, what is this? What is he doing? Yeah. Why do, what, what's making us respond? So I did I, my my first levé piece in the notebook was the germ for this, uh-huh. and that's why I had to give him credit. Uh-huh. Otherwise, of course, I would have stolen the idea <laughs> with no attribution at all. But it was too rawly, yeah. you know, the technique. However, um, my content is so different from his, you know, my lists mm. of things that even using his categories. 
each of us, Richard's, Richard didn't want to continue with it. I mm-hmm. found it enormously useful to mm-hmm. me. And I've been using variations on these techniques ever mm-hmm. since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fantastic. it's a very big, big foundational mm-hmm. shift for me as a writer. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so read okay. some of the story. All right. So, um, listeners, <laughs> this is coming. Uh, I would say it's about a 22. 20- two or 2300 word piece which is kind of long for a list but it's basically a list and um and this is coming towards the end in my apartment when i used to wait for the buzzer to ring i would dance around to jimmy cliff singing the harder they come the harder they fall a friend had a cancerous lump removed from a breast she was dark haired and pretty As she unhooked her bra, she stood before me with her chin up. A divot of flesh was missing from her left breast, and I knew I would not forget the moment. She said she felt disfigured. I said she she was beautiful. She did not have a boyfriend, and neither did I. When my mother was in her 90s and close to death, she leaned against the door of her bedroom and said, I wouldn't have had children if anyone had asked me, which they didn't. The remark makes me miss her much the way I missed her when she was alive. I think women who live in secular countries and conform to religious dress codes make the lives of all women less free and less safe. I love money as a possession, as distinguished from the love of money, as a means to the enjoyments and realities of life. John Maynard Keynes called this a somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities which one's hands out over with a shudder to the specialists in mental disease. I like the ragtag look of homemade signs at political demonstrations. I like the way alcohol makes you want to f- away your life. I eat whipped cream even though I have high cholesterol. I don't think artificial intelligence will be any more intelligent than the other kind of intelligence. I fall asleep only if I have awakened early the morning before. I once rode the horse of a mounted policeman in Central Park. I think the act of looking is erotic. A friend said, There are stories that are mine to tell and stories that are not mine to tell. I do not make this distinction. Richard said, The problem with origin myths is they contain a story about the ending of things too. People read into evolution a narrative that justifies human domination. I said, My life will go dark if you die. He said, No, it won't. And I could see what he meant. That's great. So what happened when you tried to read that? <laughs> I didn't get there. <laughs> I was in my apartment. No, seriously? Sitting, <laughs> seriously, I'm going to recreate the moment for you. I was on the toilet looking oh, at my gas. No. You know, I had like two hours before I was due to go to the studio because I live on the Upper West Side, very close to Columbia University, where I am also. Uh, was I did many degrees there, so I considered it uh, an alumna of several schools. Anyway, um, I was you know I looked at my emails and there was a frantic email from the host of the show, and 
it was astonishing. Um, in one paragraph, she used the word censor and censorship oh. three times. Oh, my God. Yes. I will have to censor you. Make no mistake about it. And she said things like, this is an offense to me personally. It's an offense to the entire university. We can't have this. I mean, it was an astonishing letter. Mm. Well, I don't know how much of this you want me to to document or detail for you, what, what the consequences were for of this. Mm. So um, my was given an ultimatum. And, and then the word f- was an issue too, but I didn't really care. So there was that issue. Um, and but the main thing was I was being told that the ideas in my um, opposition to all religious practices that mm. are gendered, um, you know, was uh, that the university. It was an, I can't remember the exact language, but it was you know the univ- mm. We can't have this at the university. This is against the university's uh, principles. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I had the option to be censored and come on. Or not, or whatever. I just wrote back and said, um, I don't participate in a sense, you know, in a censorship environment. But I also then afterwards um, posted uh, the details of it on yeah. Facebook, and it yeah. caused an enormous amount of response. And ultimately, um, four important anti censorship organizations got behind me ACLU, Penn, yeah. um, National Coalition Against mm-hmm. Censorship. And I think the um, Organization of University Professors, mm-hmm. and then Melville House. And Melville House also wrote on Moby. Um, Ian Dryblatt is an author who works there. Yeah. On, um, Moby Lives is a you know a site that's published by Melville House, and he did a long, long, really great piece about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did a piece of journalism, and he was also interested in the reaction that was produced by my posting and the, you know, enormous amount of attention that also it's it's all there. Uh-huh. It's all on I mean, Facebook didn't do anything but preserve it. So it's all preservable. But I also have the links, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then this letter was written to the university um, to no avail uh, to say, um, there are a lot of options here. Let's, you know, have a forum on what's going on on the campus where something like Mm -hmm. this could happen to an author. All of these things were, you know, were, you know, there was a very weak apology, which didn't name me or what, or the offense Mm -hmm. that was published. Um, But my letter, not my personal letter, but the letter that was co-signed by these organizations that was sent to the university um, president and various, and you know, to the radio station, et cetera, and to Barnard College, where this, where this host was a student, um, was signed by. Uh, they wanted me to to um, ask people who had um, important roles in in uh, freedom of speech in both publishing and. Um, and the university that I could easily get in touch with to sign it. And they were amazing, you know, signatures. The, you know, Dan Menneker signed it, you know, pub, you know, former uh, head of Knopf and New Yorker and, you know, lots and lots of other people of that sort. So there, were no, there was no shortage of support for me, but the university did not ever do anything to correct it, including Barnard. Yeah. yeah. It's time for a break. This is Metamorphosis II, composed by Philip Glass and performed by Branka Parlick. When we return, Laurie Stone addresses the provocations of an opinionated persona 
when the cultural climate has turned repressive. Stay with us for more Interchange. Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is Censorship and Sensibility and features Joan Hawkins in conversation with Laurie Stone. In this segment, Stone presses the point, are authors culpable for the opinions of their characters? She was censored from reading one of her stories because it was felt her narrator was anti-Islamic. Stone asks, who needs the protection of censorship in this world? This is just astounding. I mean, while you were speaking, I was thinking about, um, you know, Jean Paul Sartre has that wonderful book of essays called The Wall, The Wall and the, or Stories, rather, The Wall and Other Stories. Yeah. And there, there are two stories in there that I was thinking about. One was um, Childhood of a Leader. And one was Aristotle's. And in both of those stories, of course, he has a narrator who's absolutely disgusting. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, in Aristotle's, he's got this man who's getting ready to murder a woman. Mm-hmm. And so it details all the events leading up to that. And Childhood of a Leader is this, uh, this his attempt to come to grips with the bad faith of French collaboration. And so he's detailing how this young French man becomes a fascist. Mm. And as part of that story, you have Jean-Paul Sartre, who had been in a POW camp, right. who is... Um, who is reproducing pretty accurately the kinds of thoughts and anti-Semitic things that people would have said at certain parties in France during, you know, the pre-war period. And so, and so as you were t- talking, I was thinking about, so could, could I read that story on the air? What would be the issue there? Uh, anti-Semitism. You mean it would express anti-Semitism? Yeah. Oh, I... <laughs> I don't know. Um, It was so hard to understand what the objection was, but I was, but but it, but not really. Yeah. Even though no particular religion is mentioned, and in fact, I was thinking more of you know of Jewish, you know of of, and and there were so many images of 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 Jewish women in in Orthodox situations entirely covered by burqas. You know, entirely without even I. I mean, it's just there are astonishing images that one can find. 
um, but all kinds of things. But it was, I think, understood as anti-Islamic. Yeah. And they were oh, pretending. Yeah, no, I, didn't, pretending. I didn't mean that your piece was yeah. anti-Semitic. I was just making a leap. No, no, to, but that's yeah. the thing. So the yeah. question is, um, what is being protected? You know, you know, are you protect? Are they going to protect Jews from anti-Semitism? Maybe, maybe not. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Jews are doing okay on the university in yeah. terms. Of, you know, I mean, it's it's a question of the interpretation of that sentence. Yeah. That it's a fictional character speaking. All of yeah. these things became um, points, you know, that would have been interesting to talk about had there been a panel or yeah. some kind of public forum to look at what the author, that is Laurie Stone, meant. What the character yeah. and narrator might have been doing in that moment in the in the piece, um, and what the interpretation is, and how do people interpret writing anyway, yeah. and what is even understood in that sentence and whose yeah. and whose rights and are more important than others you know in other words it's okay to throw women under the bus if you think you're protecting possibly mm. throw women under the bus if you think you're protecting um you know the fragile rights of, a, of another group who mm. you know whose whose sense of their own imperilment in a particular country is um is fragile, you know. Yeah. I mean, all of this is interesting and understandable and right, but complicated yeah. and subtle, yeah. you know, and needs to be. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we're all trying to figure out um, what we mean by um, freedom. You know, yeah. what do we mean by liberty? You know, what yeah. do we mean by male supremacy in any context, including yeah. in religions, yeah. since we're now in a world where we're reeling. You know, and interestingly, erupt, you know, there's been a, this interesting eruption from all of these things. Um, that sentence to me has yeah. to do with um, the gender binary. Anytime yeah. it, it gets expressed, yeah. you know, where women have to do this, but men don't, or, or women have to conform, um, and men are the ones who, you know, establish and, and underscore mm -hmm. and, you know, and police and legislate that difference. Mm -hmm. Um, this narrator is saying that I'm, you know, I'm against yeah. it all. Yeah. But no particular religion is even mentioned. Yeah, right. But all religions are, in fact, yeah. um, you know, kind of implicated in that in that sentence, which I would happily, yeah. you know, have have talked about. You know, Damn, it was as yeah. if they were protecting religion from the from the yeah. scourge of Lori. You know, yeah. like religion very imperiled, Lori very powerful to destroy yeah. all religions, yeah. if only, you know. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Today, film scholar and writer Joan Hawkins interviews Laurie Stone about the work of writing and her latest book of stories, My Life as an Animal. And that, that was one of the things I remember from, I mean, even from the Facebook post was somebody said, you know, if only this would lead to like a, a full discussion of of these issues because they are complicated. They're very complicated. And um, and the fact that instead of, of that um, flowering and and opening up, that instead the idea was, well, this, this could, instead of this leading to discussion, let's just not say it at all. Let's just tamp it down. And condemn it. And, and damn condemn it, it for reasons that are inexplicable yeah. or not articulated even. Yeah. It was just damned and not yeah. articulated. And she wasn't really capable of of doing it yeah. herself. So I let her go and then dealt with, you know, the other the implications in general. 
I did think that, um, you know, it raises all these questions about um, Islamophobia through, you know, banning the headscarves, etc. I mean, there's so many different interesting, important issues having to do with colonialism and and its efflorescences in France and in all these countries where, Mm -hmm. you know, there really are interesting, important questions that sometimes female liberation really is um, a dodge, Mm -hmm. you know, or a cover for, you know, a very old colonial impulse that's, you know, and so, and that's true in this country as well, where, you know, we're going to go to Afghanistan because they're not nice to their women, you know, and Laura Bush, this is a really long time ago, I mean, you know, in the the first Gulf War, Desert Storm, I think it was called. Yeah, no, I remember what they were doing. And Laura was like, oh, well, but, but, you know, but what about the, you know, the Taliban? And yeah, well, they're not, yeah, right. But what about all of this other institutionalized, you know, misogyny and sexism Mm. that goes on in this country that doesn't get looked at because, you know, it it just produces so much conversation that's really worth having. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But you know that's not my job as a as a as a creative writer is not to straighten these things out. It's right. to create um, provocations mm-hmm. for um, really language experiments. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I'm not as interested in in having something mean something that I think it means. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm trying to share. Uh, you know, uh, something that happened in a, in a moment of writing. Really, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that was one of the other things that came out on your on the Facebook post feeds was that you were talking about. I mean, one of the earliest things you said was that first of all, this is not the I in this story is not the writer Laurie Stone. The I in this story is a fictional narrator, and so part of what's being censored is something that a fictional narrator says in the course of this long list of saying a bunch of other things. Right, and I think that that's one of the issues with a certain kind of first person narrative work where that that um, confusion happens a lot. That if um, because I, I write in the first person as well, and that I, I also create a narrator who also narrates parts of my life, but it isn't that I is not it's not the me who's sitting here in this chair right now. Could you talk just talk a little bit of, about that? Well, do you want to say something about how you work in that in that uh, framework first? So it's not so we well. Take we some could turns. Um, follow follow this thread, and then we okay. can come back to me. Okay. Um, you know, if you write in the first person and you say, I, you know, I took my bike and I went to Mars, you know, and I turned out to have, you know, three penises and two vaginas, <laughs> people will say, did that really happen? Yeah. And you'll say, mm, yeah, it did. It did. It really happened. It's the first person singular that creates it however you know there are other tricks there there are fake first persons there's the second person plural the you and that story i read last night is a fake first person which is just to write a whole story with imperatives yeah you know it's another fake i but what we're talking about is an interiority of a narrator speaking from their interiority and looking out if it's a different kind of narrator, a more omniscient narrator or a promiscuous narrator that goes into several close third persons, I don't know that I think it's harder for the reader or the listener to necessarily glom those, you know, that, oh, it's true with the story that's being told. But okay, but here we are in these first person situations. Um, 
And uh, do I care that people think it's about me? No, I don't. It's time for another break. This is Metamorphosis 3 from Solo Piano by Philip Glass, performed by Branka Parlick. More with Laurie Stone on the craft of writing when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today, Joan Hawkins talks with her friend, author Laurie Stone, about the perils of writing in the first person, out of personal experience, and how memory is the enemy of story. It's just the difference between what I write and what I live is that the stories don't come from memory. No. Memory is the enemy of story. Yeah. Memory is always going to be, in my, in my sense of things, and, and, and how I've tried to purge myself of using memory as a tool or resource, mm. is that it's almost always a consolation to the human. And I'm trying basically to protect the reader from the needs of the human. Mm. The narrator is a much more... Um, I think, in, 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 let's say, in my life as an animal. Overall, I would say the narrator of this book is nicer than me, is kinder, 
has more human generosity, has more joy in life, mm. um, is less willing to inflict her needs and anxieties onto the reader, mm. is much more trained to look out than look in. Those are the, the checkpoints that I would give myself as a you know in a text mm-hmm. as I was developing a story. Is is are the needs of the human getting in the way, mm-hmm. and the needs of this human mm-hmm. would be admire me, look how great I am, um, feel my well. I'm less subject to this, but but often the the the, the problem for me and for other first person narrators is that the narrator wants you to feel their feelings, love my friends, hate my enemies, you know, join with me in my causes, uh, care about my abuse, um, put my parents on trial, you know, um, pet me when I cry because I've had a bad love affair, all of that. I don't I don't think that the reader should be you know interrupted from their own activities. Mm-hmm of self-absorption to mm-hmm. come and pay attention to the narrator in the process of being self-absorbed. Mm-hmm. So what does it leave you? So then it leaves you. The memory is often, for me, um, it isn't even in the form of memory, because I think memory is even a memory of pain, yeah. is going to create a hero victim, yeah. a, a vi- you know, some kind of victim. And we like it. We like to remember our even our suffering and pain, because yeah. we, we're in the center of the drama, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I won't go further yeah. there. But these are the things I'm trying to very consciously, um, you know, weed out, prune out. It doesn't happen automatically. Automatically, the needs of the human are going to start infiltrating. And I have to say no. But of course, I've gotten better at it. So I have, more le- I have less tendency to need to rework my stories at this stage of my, my writing life than in my earlier writing life, because I didn't even know that that was what was hurting the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as a teacher of creative writing, it's very helpful Mm -hmm. to talk to people this way, because you can really give them um, a rubric, you know, like it, 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 it... it's, you can't teach something that's amorphous, but you really can teach things if you can break it down. Mm-hmm. You know, think about that. Think, you know, and then people start to realize memory yeah. is unimportant. It's only, um, for me, I don't have an interest or a capacity for one of those wonderful um, imaginations that's, that's, that can think about other lives and, 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 yeah. and invent all these activities for these other lives. So I take my own life and my own experience mm-hmm. As a, um, as, a, as a prompt, really, or a trigger. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. Because then the language has to produce the story. Yeah. You know, the first sentence that you're yeah. going to keep has to produce sentence number two. Yeah. And each one has to be erotic. It has yeah. to create a need in the reader. Okay, mm-hmm. what's the next sentence going to be? Okay, what, you know, and then that's technical. That's about, you know, coming into a, a room and there's a window. Well, look through the window. Yeah. What's behind the glass? Okay, there's a rabbit. Well, what is the, you know, what, where did the rabbit go? That's, that's, the, that's the work of the imagination. Right. But it's also technically what you can practice right. consciously. Right. Right. So, yeah, is it, do these things happen? Kind of, to me, in, in yeah. my life as an animal. Are there things that didn't happen? Of course, yeah. you know. Uh, is the relationship between the mother and the daughter, which many people who have reviewed the book are very taken by. It's very intimate. It's very detailed. It's very complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, But the narrator has to love that mother, or I think the reader just doesn't give a a damn about them. 
And I don't love my mother. Yeah. So I had to create a love for her. And in some ways, creating a fictional love for her produced, you know, maybe some buried love. I think the, the job of the writer does produce some interesting psychoanalytic work for you. You know, you realize more complexity mm-hmm. than what has been, you know, you've held on to your grievances. But well, I, I mean, that's... I share that with you. I had a very complicated relationship with my mother, and I also write about her. And when I write about her, I mean, one of the things I found is that in creating this narrator who is not me in that situation with my actual physical mother, um, I'm able to, because I'm viewing her perhaps as a character, not my mother, right. um, I'm able to see the complexity of her life in ways that enables me to, to draw a much more sensitive portrait of her than I think I ever experienced as a child growing up, because all I experienced as a child growing up were the negative aspects. Those things that were complexities in her life caused her to behave in a certain way that caused me pain. And that was my experience as a kid. Right. Um, but when I write about her now, I'm able to see the contradictions that she lived through I and think kind you, of what it was like to juggle all that. I think as a, I think you are, you know, that kind of writer that's mm. even more naturally um, bent to looking out than looking in. Once you're the writer, once yeah. you're once you're in the role of the writer, yeah. um, and. Uh, that what happens to us as we live our lives, of course, is we utilize analysis and summary. Yeah. And of course, those are the enemies of story. You can't, yeah. you know, you, no one no one wants you to put. And so because yeah. you start to become the writer as you want to write, yeah. um, you you have to force yourself to 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 let the let this let the scene play out. Right. Let us see the mother in complexity and action, right. and then the analysis and summary fall away. Right. There not there isn't even a place for them right. because you've created a different kind right. of being. Uh, you know, I I think you are very very good at that and very skilled oh, at that. You. Yeah, but that also is a nice way of of explaining kind of how. Yeah, how that process works. Because because you're right. I mean, I know that I too, I start with a kernel of something that's almost like a snapshot. But then the idea is not to not to recreate the memory that happened to me, but to pull out and start teasing out the details. Well, like you said, like, so, okay, I'm living in this room. What did this room look like? What were the smells? What were the street scenes? What was I doing there? Who was this guy that I was going and playing music with? Yeah. And did you um, do you have like a pretty active list that you ask yourself in the course of writing, or does it come more more organically it comes to you? More organically. I think it probably does for you. Yeah. It doesn't for me. Yeah. I have other things that are like dialogue is very easy yeah. for me, but I have to remind myself yeah. what did it smell like there, or you know. Then of course, once you start to think about that and mm-hmm. put it in, it produces other moments but yeah yeah Yeah, no well and that for me that became a really turning point in uh writing there was this period of time i don't i don't even know if we ever talked about this when i was um when i was working on my tenure book there was this awful moment i had sent it off to the press and they just kept it forever and i felt like I, i felt like some fairy tale character or something like some fairy dust had been thrown on me and i was just in this Bordeaux state, like Bardo state, like I was just, I couldn't write another academic thing. I didn't know what to do. So I started writing this murder mystery. 
And it, I was terrible at it. What, what I loved were the characters. So I had this fabulous group of characters, and I adored all of them. And I would have these dinner parties. They would always get together on Friday night for dinner, and there would be these lengthy conversations that they would have around the table. And I, clearly, I was very fascinated at all of their interactions. And, and then I would remember that this was a murder mystery, and I needed to get a body in there somehow. Yeah, <laughs> and so, so it would always bottom out in some ridiculous thing. Like so, th- so then Mara goes into the kitchen and she finds, you know, feet and Skip. My husband used to read this thing, and he said, "You know, the the dinner parties are great." The bodies, <laughs> not so much. I think you have to decide one or the other. Yeah, which one did you decide? Yeah. Well, so I, the I dinner parties. Yeah, I kept yeah. going for the dinner party, and yeah. then, as you can tell, I mean, I t- with a vengeance. Yes, of course. Well, yeah, absolutely. But plots are so pesky anyway. I find I'm trying to do away with them entirely, but still keep the tension of narrative, yeah. which is you know interesting challenge. Well, and it's the way we live our lives, too. I mean, we keep wanting to take all those moments in our lives and and string them together into a narrative so that it Mm. all adds up to some story of, like, Pilgrim's Progress, some some linear story that's... You mean, I used to be and now I'm not? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, um, And really, our lives are made up of these episodes that... Many of them don't advance the plot of our lives at all. It's an encounter you have with some homeless man on the street, and it can be, it can color your entire day. It can be very meaningful in many ways because it can make you think about all kinds of aspects of city politics, for example. Mm -hmm. But really, in terms of how Joan Hawkins got to be from, you know, January to December, it doesn't, it doesn't take up a lot of space or it doesn't advance that story. But in terms of a story to tell, it becomes very interesting. It's time for our final break. This is Metamorphosis 4, composed by Philip Glass. When we come back, more sensibility, less censorship. Stay with us.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Our show is Censorship and Sensibility, and features Joan Hawkins in conversation with Laurie Stone, author of a recent book of stories called My Life as an Animal. In this final segment, Stone talks about how her background in comedy helped her escape the teleology often imposed on stories, an ending already present in the beginning. Life is messy. Stories can be too. Do you think there is a, an arc in a life? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I think we want there to be the kind of. Um, I well, let me back up. I don't think there's a kind of arc that we're taught for like classical Hollywood narrative. I think we want there to be. Oh, and okay. and I think that that's. F- the stories and the memoirs and the biographies and autobiographies I read that I consider to be non-successful are the ones that try to take the messiness of life and sort of fit it into that narrative arc. So there's an establishment of normalcy 20 minutes in. There's an inciting incident that creates turmoil and discord. And then that kind of you, the our hero has to deal with the ups and downs of that for a certain period of time. Then there's a climax and a resolution. And then there's a denouement. And we would like our life to fall into that. Like suddenly at age 45, I realized where I had gone awry. I don't think I ever wanted these. I don't think I did ever want that sort of thing. Maybe I did, but I don't remember. I I I think you know uh, complexity, contradiction that can't be resolved is the is the material of that produces more writing, you know, more more art of any sort. So I'm more dedicated to whatever is going to keep the writing going than the life going. Actually, but I think I know what you mean. I mean, I'm not contradicting that impulse or that urge or it wouldn't be so popular <laughs> no i know i mean when you it must think, be popular there's a lot of it going yeah. around well when you think about the number of bad things that you read that try to i always think about it you know the original story of cinderella has this moment where the stepsisters are going they've locked cindy up in the attic and the stepsisters are trying on the glass slipper and uh, each stepsister mutilates her foot in order to try to fit into the glass slipper. And, of course, the prince is clueless. He just takes whoever mm-hmm. off. And so the first sister cuts off part of her heel. Right. And she goes out into the woods, and the birds are yelling at the prince to, like, go look at her foot. And he looks at her foot and realizes that there's blood, and he takes her back. And then the next princess cuts off her toe. Right. And finally, he gets the right princess. But... Uh, there are there are ways in which for me that becomes a very powerful metaphor for for what people do in order to fit into the constraints of a narrative arc or to fit That's into the constraints of a certain narrative yeah. form that they lob off some of the things that are perhaps more interesting or more integral to the foot in this case in order to make it conform to this very well uh, following the Cinderella metaphor you know this. Um, very artificial, fashionable artifact, mm-hmm. the glass slipper. Yeah, I think, um, y- you know, that's, that's, that's right. Sometimes I, I think, uh, you know, there are just these uh, exercises that I stage in a piece of writing um, where I'll just simply reverse course. Mm-hmm. in order to see what will happen. It's very much, you know, staging experiments and, and sort of, 
trying to hear, you know, one's own aria, you know, like, oh, I've sung this one before. You know, this is the one I like to sing, you know, yeah. about, you know, my mother didn't love me or, you know, yeah. or, or you know, I trust men more than women. You know, whatever, whatever the little easy, you know, things. Yeah. And flip it, you know, that just as a technique for myself, yeah. you know, let, let it go the other way. So that in, it, it, it sort of begins to challenge these ideas of this cleaned up narrative mm-hmm. arc. Um, so, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I don't really believe in uh, teleological, mm-hmm. you know, progression. So I have an easier time giving up the idea of plots going in a, you know, to a, to a resolution or, or happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last story in Animal is called mm-hmm. Happiness. And it yeah. does have some of the properties of like, uh, yeah. you know, um, Something that it's it's a very much of a lost and found. I would say yeah. the arc there. There aren't that many plots, really. What is it? Bond, you know, bond and betrayal, lost and found. I used to be, and now I'm not. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so you know those those tropes still get. You know, they can we can play with them. I think as writers and other kinds of narrative artists. But um, uh, what is the real interest in the investigation? Maybe more the times when things are impossible to resolve and that's where i think comedy also um rises up so you know for me being essentially i would say a comic writer um you know but 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 pain is everywhere yeah pain is everywhere but but so is comedy everywhere um because i think comedy is about limits and tragedy is about transcendence and i'm not really interested in transcending Mm -hmm. anything uh-huh. So, um, and I think these plots that we're talking about that have to do with these resolutions or these teleologies of arrival, you know, and mm-hmm. salvation and everything's great now and it used to be not so great. Um, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're the finished thing and comedy is mm-hmm. always about things being messy and unfinished and mm-hmm. you're, you're thwarted and you're foolish and you're, yeah. and you're humiliated and you can't yeah. get out of your own way. And yeah. um, those are the things that I know the most about. They come from yeah. my deepest experience. So um, I'm not even quite sure how to phrase this question, but one of the things I'm curious about, so you write in the first person. Mostly. I, mostly. I have some stories that are not, but not in yeah. this book. This book's all first person. Um, you know, I know that you care deeply about the women's movement. I know you care deeply about uh, feminism and about the position of women in the world. And and you're a woman writer, and you're writing in the first person. So I'm trying to craft this question about, you know, kind of how you see this, how you see the narrative voice interacting with this deeper commitment to hmm, kind of making a space for women's reality in the world, making a space for women to be heard in the world and to be seen in the world. But do you think you do that other than just by doing it? I guess that's part of my question yeah. to you is kind of how um, do you see any connection between like the, the real political work that you do and also this uh, this voice that you create? I think the work? women's movement gave me my life. I could say that. Yeah. And it happened very very propitiously for me. Uh-huh. Coming of age, sexual revolution, women's movement, great. Yeah. You know, like, okay, I I see really a lot of good stuff for Lori in this. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and then the village voice really fast. Yeah. I mean, after, you know, I mean, not in a minute, but um, pl- a place where the women's, you know, where, where, 
you were um, making the counterculture and reporting on the counterculture simultaneously, right. seamlessly, right. as we really consciously knew we were doing. You know, we right. were not interested in, you know, like hearing from the, you know, the right in, in the village right. voice. Um, so, uh, so that was extremely enabling. Mm-hmm. I think um, I was very lucky. I was very lucky because no one said, I mean, yeah, people did say no to me, but the Village Voice didn't say no. I remember very early on, I think it was something like, what was it, like the Saturday Review? Was it there something yeah. like that that, that was that, that did a lot of review, yeah. like book reviews and stuff? And I was, I started out writing in the voices, you know, writing book reviews or, you know, sort of literary essay type things. And um, this guy met with me. And he said, I really like your writing when you don't use your feminist lens. And I looked at him, and I was young mm-hmm. and hungry. And I said, I don't do that. I only I, There's no such thing. I only write with a feminist lens, and mm-hmm. goodbye. So that did happen. There's something like that conversation mm-hmm. occurred. It wasn't being brave or bold or anything. It was impossible. Yeah. Because it was the whole reason I was doing it was, yeah. to, was to see the way I saw. Yeah. And it was a great vantage point because – like the mice in Spiegelman, Spiegelman's mice, you know. If you're scurrying around on the bottom Mm -hmm. of the culture and the society, and I wasn't in every way, obviously, you know, as a a kid who was raised by, well, they were really peasants that got money, so it wasn't exactly a bourgeois, but, you know, but but certainly the trappings of that and, Mm -hmm. and higher education, all of that stuff, so it wasn't like a powerless person. But as a female, and we're talking about the 60s, and the understandings of what a female life was and what you know what a, what a, what a woman was what a man was very very different definitions and understandings you were at the bottom looking up so you could see everything mm-hmm. you know the the people at the bottom yeah. i i i said this about i wrote a lot about comedy at a certain point in my life yeah. i had a column called laughing in the dark and um, and so I think that in comedy, the power position is the position of no power. But it's probably also true for the artist in general mm-hmm. that it's, you know, you, own, you, it, you privilege is invisible to the person who's privileged. Right. And so right. being a feminist um, in, in the sense that that was the radicalizing condition. I mean, it was the war, too, and I was, you know, and I was at Barnard, and, and we were protesting against the war in Vietnam, and all of these things were going on that were radicalizing to me at the time, and the, and the um, civil rights movement, which was even earlier, you know, which was a factor when I was in high school. Mm. But, um, but by mm. the time I get to college, it's definitely the war. Um, it didn't do it. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't become this, like bodily physical like oh yes and then um and then it can also become a model or a paradigm for oppression that's not necessarily yours you know you can certainly use it as a template and i think the gay rights movement certainly used the women's movement and its thinking and politics and understanding of how femaleness was constructed in the culture and the society and could apply as well to gayness and other yeah. forms of, you know, of the less powerful in the culture and the society um, was very, very important, very powerful. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't really write about this stuff directly, as, as I don't now. So mm-hmm. I write through it. Right. That's what happened. You right. know, I'm, uh, Kate Millett was my teacher at Barnard. Um, I joined the women's movement at 19. 
uh, now. That's what was available. And But very soon after, there would be things, you know, um, more interesting, red stockings and, you know, and radical women and, and a lot of other iterations or, you know, versions of feminism as, as it was finding its own voice uh, and many voices. Yeah. And um, But I would say for me personally, the voice became the place to learn to make change, to see what other people weren't seeing. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today, film scholar and writer Joan Hawkins interviews Laurie Stone about the work of writing and her latest book of stories, My Life as an Animal. And now, here's an extended edit of our conversation, especially for our podcast listeners. So one of the things was I had this huge opportunity to write basically whatever I wanted. And I wrote a lot about theater. And I wrote about um, queer theater very, very soon, as soon as I could. And um, and women, you know, and, and as much, you know, gay women's stuff as I could because they were the most marginalized in the worlds yeah. that I was able to and, – and they're, and they're writing. So yeah. I was doing a lot of cultural criticism and I would – I was able to say another county heard from, you know, let's yeah. let's include these people. And in theater and in comedy, it really meant something. Um, I mean, this is by virtue of writing for something like The Voice, which was thought to be an important, you know, cultural commentator. But that when when cable television was just starting mm. and there was all this airtime, you know, showtime and, and this was comedy it was called the Comedy Channel. It was before it was called Comedy Central. Mm. But there were these early um cable things and they would come to people like me and say, What do we do? You know, how would we fill up the time? And I would say, Oh, well go go you know, go to go to Caroline's and see this coming. You know, they'll they're good. They they mm-hmm. they have a great twenty minutes. How did they do it? Yeah. Well, they spent seven years making twenty minutes, that's how they did it. Yeah. You know. And that's that actually was it was yeah. wonderful to um, help people go from, you know, hole in the wall, rat hole places on the Lower East Side to you know, and yeah. whatever, I don't think HBO was around then, but, you know, what would soon be that kind of HBO special. Yeah. In fact, it soon was on the scene, you know, because yeah. I remember Caroline, um, she's a big producer at HBO now. She was involved in the comedy, you know, mm-hmm. in, in trying to find people to make these half hour, you know, comedy shows and then hour long comedy shows and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So when I look back and as uh, at my work as a as a as a journalist or quasi-journalist, the thing that makes me proudest is having helped a lot of people, you know, find visibility. And then, you know, and then the times, you know, the voice would cover them and then and then people would start to cover them in the yeah. larger, in, in the yeah. larger places. And um, so that was exciting and important yeah. to me. So I had two kind of follow-up questions. Yeah. I wanted you to say more about uh, your work with Kate Millett. Yeah. And then I also wanted you to just say a little bit more about sort of the um, the different places you've worked, the arc of your career, speaking of trajectories yeah. and arcs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish there was an arc. And it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kate was my teacher at Barnard, and she was very warm and loving to her students. And we, a bunch of us, you know, kind of became her friends and then I was in, I went to 
Columbia Graduate School. And so mm-hmm. I still, she was still at Barnard and, and um, working on sexual politics. Um, we talked a lot about, I was doing, I was writing about the Bronte, I was writing about Charlotte Bronte when I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And some of that found its way into her work. And um, pr- I'm proud to say, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm acknowledged in the oh, beginning of sexual politics. But she was just, um, I'm very sad that she died recently. Um, I, uh, I mean, she had a, a big, complicated life, you know, past mm. this time. But she was a great, great teacher. She just was super prepared. She taught me so much about not about writing, but about thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 um, thinking in a subversive way. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, you know, first thought, not best thought, because our yeah. first thoughts would be, you know, the ones we were trained to think. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe for Allen Ginsberg, first thought, best thought, but not for Laurie Stone. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, think some more, think some more, think some yeah. more. And that's so totally how I work as a writer, too. Yeah. You know, I make zillions of drafts. Yeah. That's um, still that's one of the hardest things, I think, to, to talk to students about this idea that... Um, that you have to keep pushing yourself. But you have to also like that pra- process. Yeah. I think one of the things that was very lucky for me is I find writing erotic. Yeah. I'm excited by it. Yeah. I like words. I like language. I like thinking about what they are as mm-hmm. things as opposed to um, vehicles for meaning making. Yeah. And so I didn't used to talk this way or think this way. It evolved. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps to answer the other question, which is, where are you and what are you doing? Or where'd you come, where'd you come from and where where'd are you, you now? Where'd you come from and where are you going? <laughs> I, think, I think there, you know, there is a consistency between that writer voice that started writing in the village voice yeah. and this person now who writes these books. Very, very freewheeling. I can say anything I want in any order I want. Um, if I seduce you into following my sentences, I will keep you interested in me. Even if someone else is more brilliant, someone else is more skillful. Um, I think it's erotic. You know, I mean, going back to Sartre, which is where we started, uh, the words. Doesn't he have, you know, reading and writing, écrit and and lire? And and so I think I remember that he writes about the eros of writing in that book and and words, you know, what it meant to him. And um, so... More freedom is what I would say for me, giving myself more freedom to play, mm-hmm. uh, formally um, invent or, or steal other people's. I learned a lot from Lydia Davis. I've learned a lot from she's some, she's, she's really useful, very she very knows. useful. I didn't even understand what these stories were about. Richard ha- actually had to explain it to yeah. me. <laughs> I yeah. said I don't get it. Why? And he explained it to me, and I thought, oh. And then I tried to start try to practice yeah. her. Spalding Gray, hugely Spalding important Gray to me as a, um, a teacher of yeah. the monologue. Um, yeah. And I, uh, uh, and comedy, and how yeah. comedy can do everything. Yeah. The comic voice can do everything. Um, Jewish humor is certainly yeah. in my voice, I think. Um, uh and 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 looking at the little, you know, looking yeah. at the the mouse from the mouse's perspective, but also at being a mouse, you know, or m- moving through the world, you know, that way. Yeah. Um, so, I I guess what I'm interested in now is um, 
is making people, I think, I think what we do at our best is we teach people how to read the thing they don't know how to read when they first look at it. Right. The same way other artists do with visual art or right. film. Right. It's like, what is this? And if you're, or Philip Glass with music or right. Frank Gehry with, you know, with architecture, um, it's the invention of an idiom that is really original. I'm not putting myself in this class. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying these are my, I aspire yeah, to yeah, this. Yeah. Um, the idiom is original. It's somehow can be accessed, but it's doing different things than people expect it to do. And little by little, you seduce them into teaching them how to read you. Mm -hmm. And the challenge I have now for the next book is it's much less coherent, in a sense, Mm -hmm. formally than even this one, even though this is almost like something that you threw against a wall and you picked up the fragments and then you just lay them out on a table. This other book is much more experimental in terms mm. of it. And I I'm, I'm still want the reader to come away from it yeah. thinking they've had a whole meal, they're not hungry, or if that's the yeah. right metaphor, or a whole sexual experience and they're, you know, they're satisfied, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever fullness of, of, of experience can be had through um, living with another pe- person's work of art. How do I do that without a plot, without, you know, you know what, by using all these fragmented techniques Will it work? Won't it work? It doesn't. I don't know. The only way you know is to start piecing it together and seeing if it still excites you. If it starts to bore you, finish. You're done. Yeah. And and that, that's always what I use. I put something aside. I go back to it. It's boring. Nah, it's not working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We say in film studies, we talk a lot about how a film teaches you how to read it in the first five to six minutes of the movie. Perfect. So so you know yeah, you perfect. watch, and that if a film is well made. Uh, the director and the cinematographer will will put together the opening sequence with that in mind. Like, what is the syntax and vocabulary I want the reader, to, the watcher, the viewer, the mm-hmm. spectator to have to get us through the rest of the film? And so they'll often even use like um, the producer of Memento. I think talked very pointedly about that. That that was a film that was moving in a particular kind of narrative fashion. And so they designed the credit sequence very deliberately to let the viewer know that, okay, this is a film that's going to be being told backward in some sections and forward in other sections. And So and interesting. It's, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's very, very, very Do you well remember done. how the credits um, implied that or suggested that? Yeah, so there's a sequence where you see two men in a um, you see two men in a garage I think it is one man's going to shoot another but suddenly you see you see some blood and it moves is moving upward mm. on the wall instead mm. of moving down on the mm. wall and when she was talking about it she says so you first see that and you think maybe it's a little trippy you see a bullet casing that seems to be moving in the opposite direction of the way it should be moving and so you're beginning again to think like something's odd and then a gun comes from the ground up into the hand of the person who's just shot the sky and um yeah and so that you you and that becomes the very jarring note where you realize okay so this story is going to be told differently than any other film Mm -hmm. than i've than i've seen before and um and it's very effective it works for that particular example works very well it's brilliant and um it brings me to another thought about uh, what 
telling stories non-chronologically offers yeah. both the writer and the and the reader yeah. um, a lot of space to fill in. Yeah. You know, because I believe, I mean, you're, yeah. you know, you're a, a, a film scholar and you know a lot about this, and I really don't. I'm just using this language, perhaps a little promiscuously, but you know, uh, I really love jump cuts in mm-hmm. writing, but also. Um, just what montage can do in terms of you lay this image next to that image and then a third yeah. image and homo sapien brain is just going to make a story out of yeah. them you, th- th- that's what it does it's it, yeah. it's it, it's creating narrative out of out yeah. of things that simply are and so um so the one of the great things about being a writer that isn't who isn't overtly narrative is it's going to be narrative anyway you just you know you have to design that series with enough yeah. Um, space for the reader to fill in. Um, And anyway, that's how memory works. It's apparently, you know, physiologically, we only really retrieve in the the database a few things, and each memory is the recreation, is a new recreation based on those cues and triggers. And um, I think that's what I'm aspiring to in, in, in this new book, but also hopefully beyond that. And, um, but it's odd for me even to be talking about myself with so much formal focus. Mm-hmm. I would never have done this at an earlier stage of life. So to go back, mm-hmm. I think I would have talked more about content mm-hmm. or, or, or characters mm-hmm. or um, emotions. And I find that hardly mentioned any of these things in this conversation, right? Yeah. Should I? <laughs> <laughs> but I think you should read your, your last piece. Oh, Okay. Um, and okay, yeah. All right. So this is actually from this is this is from my life as an animal too. It's very short. Uh, the book is mixed with very short pieces and some quite long ones. And I think I think that's fun to do as well. You know, mm. just a little bit of maybe palate uh, cleansers and then a bigger long. My boyfriend said, "Get a cab." He said, "Get an Uber." When he said get a cab. I said, I'll call you later. I was sweating and my hair was frizzled. It was four o'clock and there was no shade along the eight-lane road banked with baking vegetation and fast food. I crossed to the other side to wait for a bus. A woman was on a bench in the sun without a hat. Her shoulders were the color of a rib roast. She smiled and said a bus was due to arrive, and there it was, rounding a corner. The driver was large and beautiful behind the wheel, with red lips and thick dreadlocks secured at the base of her neck. The bus was cool. I said to her, a waitress gave me wrong directions to my hotel. She said, a waitress, of course, sniffing. (laughs) I was in Orange, California, and I had walked eight miles the wrong way. I had a phone. I had GPS. Never mind. The driver's name was Joanne. She said the ride was on her. Once, when I was trimming an agave in our backyard, I was bitten by fire ants. I thought they would not bite me because I was helping the plant. Joanne was full of life's happiness. I stood close to her, and when the bus stopped, we looked in each other's eyes. The smell of roses wafted in and disappeared so quickly it might have been an illusion. Only poor people ride buses here. 
everyone was a little rickety from exposure. I was watching movies about women who trekked long distances in scorching conditions with inadequate preparation. Why women? I said to Joanne, I will not forget you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. That's our show, and you guessed it. We'll listen to Metamorphosis 5 from Philip Glass on the way out. Thanks to Joan Hawkins and Laurie Stone for joining us to talk censorship and sensibility. More on Laurie Stone's feminism, theater criticism, and the influence of sexual politics author Kate Millett in the extended version of Interchange at wfhb.org news interchange. Laurie Stone's book, My Life as an Animal, was published in 2016 by Northwestern University Press. Next time on Interchange, Max Eastman in the flesh. Considered one of the hottest radicals of his time, Eastman edited two of the most important modernist magazines, The Masses and The Liberator, and showed genuine political and moral courage as a suffragist, anti-war activist, and anti-Stalinist. His translation of Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution is still the standard version. He was open about sex and pleasure at a time when such openness was rare and valuable, perhaps mitigating and redeeming his truly astonishing degree of promiscuity. Max Eastman in the flesh, with biographer Christoph Ermscher, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.